at the beginning of all things, there is hope. Even before creation of the world, there was hope. Before there was light, there was hope in the darkness. As the Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep, everything was, as Scripture says, void. And yet, there was hope in Him. Before there is ever peace, there is hope in the chaos. In the most difficult moments of our lives, we can have hope. Hope heals the brokenhearted. Hope provides a way out of the pit of depression. And that's why the psalmist said three times in Psalm 42 and 43, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, he said. For I shall again praise him, my salvation. Put our hope in God. You know, it's been a while since I've mentioned this book, and so I thought, you know, maybe it's time to talk about it one more time. Uh, but Paul David Tripp, in his book, New Morning Mercies, talks a lot about hope. And one of the things that he uh, wrote in there, I'm, it's somewhat lengthy, but I want to I read it to you. And just in case, if you're looking for a devotional book, to read for 2024 and you've never read New Morning Mercies by Paul David Tripp, I highly encourage you to do so. Here's what he said. He said, you and, I are in, you and I are on a constant quest for hope. We all want a reason to get up in the morning and motivation to continue. Here are some things you have to know about hope. Number one, God hardwired human beings for hope. We don't live by instinct. We all find our identity, meaning, purpose, and inner sense of well-being in something. Number two, what you place your hope in will set the direction for your life. Whether you know it or not, your path is directed by hope. Whether it's hope in a philosophy a person, a dream, a location, or whatever. Your life will be shaped by what you place your hope in. Hope always includes, I'm sorry, number three. Hope always includes an expectation and an object. I am hoping for something and hoping that someone or some, something will deliver it. Number four, hope to be hope has to fix what is broken. Hope that does not address your needs isn't very hopeful. You place your hope in a mechanic only if he has the ability to fix your broken car. And number five, you always preach to yourself a gospel of some kind of hope. You're always reaching for hope and preaching to yourself, to yourself the validity of what you reach for. 
And then this is how he concludes this section. He said, but here is the radical truth of the gospel. Hope is not a situation. Hope is not a location. Hope is not a possession. Hope is not an experience. Hope is more than an insight or a truism. Hope is a person and his name is Jesus. He comes to you and makes a commitment of hope when he said in Matthew 28, 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now there's hope. Well, Today, we're starting a new sermon series for Christmas. And this is a very short series that we're going to be doing because Christmas is only a few weeks away. So for the next four weeks, uh, we'll be uh, looking at uh, some ideas that I'm about to introduce to you. Uh, but just to let you know, we are not going to have a recharge book for this series. We will have one for our next series starting in January. But in order to uh, give you something extra to do if you're interested, um, I've got a, a link on the screen right now, and there's also a link in your uh, bulletin at the bottom of your sermon notes page. Uh, if you are interested in reading a plan, uh, Bible reading plan through the YouVersion Bible app that will coordinate or correlate with our study this month, then I would encourage you to follow that link. Um, what it is, it's going to take you to a sign-up group for you to be able to join in a group's, group reading plan. It's a 28-day uh, study, and I, I hope you'll consider doing that. Um, it's, a, it's an excellent plan, and it's focused in, as it turns out, exactly on what uh, we are going to be studying this month. Now, the sermon series that we're starting today is a four-part series called Anticipating Advent. And today we're going to be looking at this idea, in case you hadn't caught on yet, we're going to talk about hope today. Um, we're going to be looking at hope as it relates to the prophesied arrival of the Christ child. Now over the next three weeks we're going to look at the ideas of peace, joy, and love respectively. And the Bible uh, reading plan that I'm inviting you to join in with me uh, follows along with those same ideas of hope, peace, joy, and love. Now, before we get into our text today, I want to take a few minutes to uh, look at this concept of Advent. Uh, what does this word mean? What is Advent? Where did Advent come from? And why is it important to us as believers and as the church today? So if we look first at this word the word advent is derived from a latin word adventus which means coming or the arrival of something uh, in the greek it's uh, from the word parousia and that word uh, for arrival or coming occurs 24 times in the new testament and often it's just referring to when someone arrived you know paul might say you know I rejoiced or I was really thankful for Timothy's arrival 
to come see me because, you know, he's a good friend. It might be that. But more than half of the time that this word is used in the New Testament, uh, they specifically refer to the coming of Christ. Now, in theological terms, we can see Christ coming both as an event that has already taken place as well as of an event that is still yet to come. You see, we refer to the first advent. Have you heard of that before, I think? Yes? The first advent refers to that time when Christ arrived here on the earth. The incarnation of God, born as a baby from a virgin mother. He is Emmanuel, meaning he is God with us. That was his first arrival, his first advent. Now, the second advent is something that we look forward to with anticipation because that will be the day when Jesus returns and comes back for us. Uh, Thayer's Greek lexicon refers to this as the future visible return from heaven of Jesus the Messiah to raise the dead, hold the last judgment, and set up formally the glorious kingdom of God. The end of all times, that will be the the second advent or the second arriving or second coming of Christ. Now, when we think about advent, you know, we don't, we we have the words that talk about the coming or the arrival uh, in scripture. But the, when you look at the history of advent, you might be surprised to discover that advent was not originally connected with Christmas. It was Christmas adjacent, but it wasn't actually connected with Christmas. You see, if you go all the way back to the the 4th and 5th centuries in Western Europe, scholars believe that that this idea of Advent was a season of preparation for the baptism of new believers at the January Feast of Epiphany, which correlates with what we now know as Three Kings Day, which is January the 6th. And during this preparation period, what they did is they would spend 40 days in penance, prayer, and fasting to prepare for this celebration. Aren't you glad that Advent today doesn't include penance, prayer, and fasting? Or at least the first and the last. I'm okay with the prayer part, you know, but the penance and fasting isn't necessarily what I want to celebrate Advent with. but So that's the 4th and 5th centuries. By the 6th century A.D., Roman Christians had tied Advent to the coming of Christ. But the coming that they had in mind was not Christ coming in the manger in Bethlehem, but rather his second coming when he comes to judge the world. So the Advent season was not explicitly linked to Christmas until the Middle Ages, somewhere around the the 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th century A.D. Well, you know, if you look at at the overall picture of the Bible, you know, it starts with the beginning, the Genesis, and then it, it introduces us to some, some ancient men and some of the things that happened by faith with, with Noah. And, and then it gets into introducing us to a man named Abram. 
and how that God chose Abram and his family uh, to be his chosen people. And, but then they ended up in slavery in, ex in Egypt and then God delivered them out of that slavery. Well, if you, if you look at the big, big picture of the Old Testament, um, at the end of the Old Testament, Israel was in exile. They were waiting and they were hoping and, and praying that God would deliver them in the same way that he had delivered them out of Egypt, so their people out of Egypt so many years before. And so they were prayerfully expecting this coming Messiah that had been prophesied by so many of the prophets and the psalmist. And so they were looking back to God's gracious actions in the past of leading them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they were hoping that God would deliver them yet again. Well, according to Justin Holcomb, he said this. He said, in the same way, the church during Advent looks back upon Christ's coming in celebration while at the same time looking forward in eager anticipation to the coming of Christ's kingdom when he returns for his people. And so when we think about this idea of Advent, the key to understanding this concept is to remember that it is focused on the coming of Christ, the arrival of of Christ. There's an old song, and when, we, when I say old, that, that's actually not sufficient. There is an ancient song written in the 12th century that we still sing today. The song is called, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And you know, this, this psalm, I believe, should be what our heart's cry is as a church during this Christmas season. And you know, I said 12th century, it's not. It's 1,200 years ago. It's 8th or 9th century. Long time ago. But the words to this song, it simply says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And then it says, rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. That's where we are today. Crying out for, for God to come. And ransom us. Do you know what that means? I mean, you know what it is to pay a ransom, right? It's the same, it's the same basic idea. Someone who's in captivity, if the ransom is paid for that person, then they are set free. Ransom us from our sins because we are mourning in exile here on this earth, waiting for the second coming of Christ. I want to encourage you right now, if you would, to close your eyes, bow your head. Recently, I was in, asked if I ever used music in the middle of my sermons, and so I thought today I might. And so I want to, I want to sing this song to you. 
as you prayerfully consider what it means to anticipate the coming of Christ. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of imagine sitting on a dirt floor in a rock building in the dark because there was no electricity maybe with a candle at most you see folks this embodies hope in what was literally the dark ages this should be our heart's cry today. O come, O come, Emmanuel. So what does Advent look like in our modern society? Well, this period that, that we now refer to as Advent, which is December 1st through December 24th, has been commemorated in countless ways. The Advent calendar, believe it or not, actually started out of a Protestant context carrying this underlying spiritual message of anticipation and hope. And so there's a countdown starting in December 1st leading up to the, the time where we celebrate the birth of Christ. Um, but, you know, uh, the Advent calendars have digressed and... Uh, <laughs> become many other things in our society today you know traditionally the catholic church celebrates advent by spending the first two weeks of advent looking forward to the second coming of christ and then the last two weeks they look back at the first coming of christ what we would refer to as the christmas story now frankly as baptist we often shy away from focusing on the celebration of Advent because we are afraid of being called uh, ecumenical or too liturgical or whatever. And so, so it's like, oh, that, that's something for other people to talk about. And that's why I wanted to share with you the history and meaning behind this word. You, but, you know, there's another Advent tradition that I have become aware of, frankly, somewhat accidentally. You see, as I was preparing for this uh, Christmas series, I had some ideas in my mind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to go back and look at some of these prophecies of Christ and, and show how um, the prophecies of Christ foretold the, the birth 
of the Christ child. And what I discovered as I was doing this, as I was looking at these prophecies, my studies led me to several passages. And from within those passages, I discovered some overarching themes that were emerging. And these themes included the theme of hope and the theme of peace and the theme of joy and the theme of love. You know, as they say, uh, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Well, what I discovered was that many people who have come before me also saw these emerging ideas and themes in the Old Testament prophecies. And so uh, what I discovered is those four themes are actually quite prominent in, their, in the, the way people consider this idea of Advent. So that's what we're going to look at this month. We're going to talk about hope and peace and joy and love. So let's look, if you would, at the prophet Isaiah chapter 7. We're not going to read a lot of scripture because there's so much here, but I want to Pick a couple of scriptures to look at in chapter 7 and 8. And then in a moment, we'll go back and look again at chapter 8 and into chapter 9 this morning. So we first find a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The Bible says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17, the prophet goes on and says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. So what is the promise we, that we see here in Isaiah 7:14 because the first thing I want us to consider this morning is that we need to hope in God's promises. Well, the promise that we see it seems that it's about a baby, right? It says that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That's a pretty miraculous thing that we're talking about here. But as miraculous as a virgin giving birth is, that is the smaller of the two miracles that are mentioned here in Isaiah 7.14. Well, what could be bigger than a virgin giving birth, you might ask? It's that word, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. God with us. You see, God is promising to come down from heaven to be with us, to be one of us. The promise is the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. And then in chapter 8, verse 17, we see that Isaiah says that he will wait for the Lord. Now, this, this gets into the weeds a little bit as far as, you know, going a little deeper into some of this. And this is one of the big reasons I want to encourage you to sign up to be a part of that uh, version Bible reading plan. 
because you can take the next seven days talking about and looking at this idea of hope. But you see, in the Old Testament, there are two words that can be translated or understood as hope. And both of these words are used here in Isaiah 8, verse 17. It tells us again, I will wait for the Lord and I will hope in him. In each of those uh, phrases, that word wait and hope can each mean the concept of hope. When he says, I will wait, it carries the idea of I will wait for the Lord. I will long for the Lord. It's this idea that we're anticipating the Lord's arrival. We're, we're hoping that the Lord will come. And then he says, secondly, I will hope. And this word, the same, could also be translated as wait. In fact, the, the amplified version of the Bible says, I will look eagerly for him. It's not just a matter of waiting, but it's that idea of anticipating. So the meaning emerging from these verses is, I will wait for, or I will long for the Lord, even though it says he is hiding his face. In other words, his work in the prophet's life and in Israel's, in the nation of Israel at this time, the work of the Lord was not identifiable among the Israelites at this time. But Isaiah said, I will wait for the Lord. I will long for the Lord. I will eagerly look for him. I will trust in him. I will hope in him. That's what he tells us here in Isaiah 8, 17. But, you know, finding hope in the pages of Scripture is quite easy. It's everywhere. And you look, start looking through Scripture, and if you have it in your mind that if it's translated in English either as hope or as wait, those two are interchangeable, basically. When you, when you realize that, you'll start seeing this idea of hope and waiting all over the, the Old Testament. I want to point you to one place, Psalm 130. In Psalm 130, let's read starting in verse 5. The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, I hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I wait for the Lord, he says. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. The psalmist was waiting and hoping for the steadfast love and the redemption from the Lord that would pardon him from his sins. That's one example. Another example, we can go to the book of 1 Peter, and I'll give you just a little more time if you're trying to get there. Uh, I apologize, I, I kind of hustled through a moment ago. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, the apostle Peter here refers to Jesus as our living hope or the embodiment of hope. He goes on to say that our heavenly reward and our inheritance is all wrapped up in him as well. It is our hope. So we must hope in God's promises. The promises that we find here in scripture. You see, biblical hope is a choice that we must make every day. Did you hear that? Biblical hope is a choice we must make every day. Dr. Tim Mackey explains that biblical hope is not optimism based on the odds. It is a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. And so... We wait. But can we just admit the simple fact that waiting is not always easy? In fact, some people would say it's the hardest thing that we do in the world is to wait. We usually do not enjoy waiting, do we? So a moment ago, we looked at Psalm 130. We looked at 1 Peter 1. I want to look at those again. Uh, in just a moment but before we do that let's look at Isaiah chapter 8 once again because I want us to see that in all of these examples of hope we have examples of difficulty as well let's read from Isaiah chapter 8 verse 21 and we'll read through chapter 9 verse 1 The prophet continued by saying, They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan Galilee of the nations so let's take a moment and look at what this hope looks like Because this is hope in great distress. How does this passage describe the people here? Did you notice that in verse 21? They were distressed. A couple quick things before we jump into that. A couple of noteworthy things. In the original Hebrew Bible, uh, chapter 9 verse 1 is actually chapter 8 verse 23. 
So really, it, it, it fits better at the end of chapter 8 than it, than it does at the beginning of chapter 9. And also, notice in verses 21 and 22, the prophet is using a third-person plural pronoun throughout. Different forms, but third-person plural, meaning they, them, their, whatever, okay? But when he gets to chapter 9, verse 1, it seems that he's no longer talking about them, referring to all of Israel, but rather now he's talking to an individual, which is signified by a singular third-person pronoun. And the individual is identified here at the end of verse 1. It's the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So in 21 and 22, he's talking about all of Israel. But then he sets aside Galilee as being different. Now, notice how they're described. It says that they are greatly distressed. It says they're hungry and they're hangry. Did you see it? I mean, it couldn't get any more clear than that. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged. That is the definition of being hangry. It goes on and says they are contemptuous in their speech. What does that mean? Well, I looked it up, and, and there are several words that describe it. Things like being scornful, condescending, disrespectful. So they're stressed out, hangry, condescending, disrespectful people. And all that they see, Isaiah says, is distress, darkness, gloom, and anguish. Their circumstances have caused them to give up. They were done. But, folks, biblical hope is not based on circumstances. We see this to be true in so many situations in Scripture. And if I had another hour to preach, I would start listing out some of those examples. But you think about it for a minute. All of the stories where, where the, a person's faith was evident where they hoped in the Lord, how many times did they have any evidence in front of them to help them to make that decision? I mean, just think about Noah building an ark. Took him a hundred years to build it because water was going to fall down from the sky and flood the earth. That's what God had told him. And so he trusted in the Lord by the way, to this point, water had never fallen down from the sky in the form of rain. He had no evidence that that could ever happen. And yet, he hoped in the Lord, I better stop or I'll just keep going. There are so many examples of people who had gloomy, dark, you know, Desperate circumstances, and yet they chose to wait for the Lord, to hope in the Lord, and to trust in his faithfulness. So now let's revisit those passages we looked at just a few minutes ago. In Psalm 130, you know, we read verses 5 through 8 
a moment ago, a beautiful passage about waiting for the Lord and hoping in his word. But we didn't read verses 1 through 4. Let's read 1 through 4 now. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. You, did you hear some clues about the situation this psalmist was dealing with at that time? What about 1 Peter? We go back to chapter 1 of 1 Peter. We started reading in verse 3. We read through verse 5. And, you know, he is, he's talking about how he has been born again into a living hope. Jesus Christ, because of his resurrection from the dead. Now, look at verse 6. In this you rejoice. I mean, yeah, of course. You have new life in Christ, forgiveness of sin. He has risen from the dead, and you are promised an inheritance of heaven as the Son of God. As a Son of God. In this you rejoice, he said. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Even though your circumstances, I mean, it, it describes it, the, their life as being tested by fire, going through various trials. But he said... Even though that's what you're dealing with, you can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. One more passage I want us to look at. And it's a passage we've looked at several times in the last few weeks. And it seems to be a passage I, I just keep coming back to. And um, Brother Charles last Sunday uh, used this as his base text for his message and that's Philippians chapter 4 he was looking at verses 6 and 7 I want us to read quickly verses 4, 5, 6 and 7 and as we read this I want you to be aware of just a little bit of the historical context do you know where Paul was when he wrote these words he was in prison in Rome awaiting his execution. Okay? In prison in Rome awaiting his execution and he 
wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is, those are the words of a man who has chosen hope because he had no reason to be hopeful. Only in Christ does he find his hope. So folks, no matter what you're facing today, no matter what circumstances, what trials, what difficulties you might be dealing with personally, no matter what, you can choose hope. And the beautiful thing about it is, is when we choose hope, we can also share that hope with others. And what better time to share hope with others than this holiday season? When we started the message today, we watched a video describing hope. We're going to watch a video like that each week, kind of as an introduction. So when, when Brother David finishes the prayer and the praise team starts making their way down, you, you might want to pay attention so you can read the lyrics because every week I may not reread those. But I want to share those lyrics with you right now that were on the screen. The video described hope saying, we don't have to look at the pain. We don't have to look at the suffering. We don't even have to look at each other. The dark feels safe, but something happens when we light a candle in a dark room. We can't call it dark anymore. One light gives hope. One light illuminates the way for more. One light shows us that all is not lost. All is not dark. In a crazy, dark, and noisy world, one light of hope may be enough. Enough to see the world isn't as scary as we thought. Despite those who may say otherwise, there is hope for our future. There is hope for our families. There is hope for the world. We will light the first candle. Now we can see the way to light others. We will be the light. We will bring the hope of Jesus to the world. I ask you today, will you choose hope despite the circumstances you find yourself in today? Father in heaven, we thank you for this time together and we thank you for the amazing truth of your word where you prophesied the coming of your son hundreds of years before he arrived. Thank you for his arrival, Lord. Thank you that we can trust in him. 
Thank you for the hope that we have in him. Father, if there are those here today that do not know him, that do not have this hope, Father, I just pray that you would burden their hearts and that they would come to know you as their Savior. And Father, for those of us who have been walking by faith for all these years, I just pray, Father, that we would have the the gumption to choose hope when all seems hopeless. Lord, we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.